Welcome to the Defence Forces podcast brought to you by the Defence Forces Public Relations Branch. Hello and welcome to the Irish Defence Forces podcast. My name is Captain Keen Clancy and today we welcome onto the show Commandant James Lettingham, Chief Instructor of the Defence Forces Physical Education School, Emer Falun, Head Defence Forces Physiotherapist, Sergeant Jim Maguire, Instructor at the Defence Forces Physical Education School, and later in the show we welcome on Lieutenant Paul Murphy, former Kilkenny Hurler and four-time All-Star. And today we're going to cover the topic of military fitness, physical fitness and sport generally in the Defence Forces. Welcome on to the show all, it's great to have you. Thanks, Thanks very Thank much. you very much, Keen. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to get a little bit of a background from, from each of you for the people at home listening, just so they know who you are. We might start off with yourself, sir, just your own background and how you found yourself to be where you are. Perfect, thank you very much. Um, so I'm the school commandant here in the Defence Forces Physical Education School. I would have joined the organisation in 2004 as a, an Army cadet, uh, commissioned in 2006 to Kilkenny, and then through the, uh, the ongoing third level education system, I would have done uh, physical education as an undergrad. Um, I would have been afforded the opportunity to do a master's in uh, sports performance. And then through those qualifications, um, it would have brought me to uh, the school here where I now take up uh, the appointment, as I said, as a school commandant. And then from my own interest and probably what has drawn me to the, to the Defence Forces, um, I've had a keen interest in sport throughout my career and particularly in uh, athletics. So I suppose that's a, a brief overview of, of myself. Percent, yeah. Great, sir. And uh, yourself, Emer, how did you find yourself to, to get to be here today? <laughs> Thanks very much, Keen. Um, so I'm Defence Force's senior physiotherapist. I um, took up the position in 2015 and uh, set up an internal uh, service with Defence Forces. Um, my own background is as a physiotherapist. I qualified uh, in use, from UCD in twenty. 2009 and then uh, subsequently got my master's in sports and exercise physiotherapy um, in 2015. Fantastic. I also take an interest in sports as well. (laughs) And you're also a member of the reserve as well? I am a member of the reserve um, counting 17 years now I think. Fantastic. You already had an interest in us before you you came in. (laughs) I did. Uh, And yourself Sarge? Yeah um, can you know I'm actually I was born here in the Curra. I've lived here all my life. Uh, I was always going to be a soldier. Um, uh, what confirmed me being a soldier was I was in school up here in the Curra Tech uh, with a career guidance teacher, come in the first day, opened out the books, said, I know what you're all going to be. We said, what? <laughs> Soldiers. <laughs> he actually closed up the books and left. We never saw him again. Um, so while I always knew I was going to be a soldier, that's what confirmed it for me. But uh, funny enough, most of the class didn't become soldiers. We'd hairdressers, we'd block layers, we'd every kind of thing, but, but not soldiers. Uh, I think growing up on the Curra, um, sort of because it was so disciplined, especially back in the 70s and 80s, it was very, very disciplined here, even for civilians. Uh, it turned an awful lot of people off it. Um, so anyways, I, I joined the army. I, I trained up in the Tor Battalion there, there for a couple of years. And, Spent about nine or ten years in the ranger wing, so and then spent the rest of my career down here in the, in, in in the school. Uh, my my educational background is my my degree is uh, exercise and health fitness, which obviously ties in with, with, with what I do here. Fantastic, great, um, and I suppose that leads us on nicely because you you Sarah, here's you're you're a resident kind of primary expert on, on military fitness and I know that you're, do, you're doing up a doctrine at the moment an updated Defence Force doctrine on it yeah. but can you tell the people at home kind of like when we say military fitness like what do we mean by military fitness as opposed to say other types of fitness 
Yeah, I, I suppose, uh, like, we're, we're a breed onto our own, and I suppose every fitness organisation would say, would say that about themselves. And I suppose when we look at it, we're very similar in most ways, in that we, we have to be mentally strong, physically fit, tactically aware and technically proficient. And we have to have a good lifestyle as well. But I think uh, what really, really makes it so different for us is that uh, combat fitness where our lives depend on it. And we're supposed to train that way and stay trained that way. Uh, and I, th I think even an example for, for myself, uh, having spent a, a good number of years in the range wing, I, I left on two different occasions. And the first time I went away, I left, I went to the School of Signals for about six months. And my training wasn't as good or as at high intensity as what it would have been in, in, in the range wing. So when I went back, I struggled really badly for about two months. And I suppose one of the major aspects of being in the military is that you have to be fit for your job. And during that two months, I would have had to ask myself a lot of questions. Well, you know, why are you struggling here? You were training when you were away. Uh, you, you were fit. But yet when you came back into this environment, you were struggling. Uh, and the second time I left, uh, after spending about 10 years there, I left and I came down to the school here. And I was training all day, every day, strength, work, running. I was really, really, really fit. Got called back then to go to East Team or with, with the Rangering, which was a peace and force and mission. Uh, and the turnaround of that was really quick from being here uh, and then heading to East Team was about three weeks. And again, I struggled really, really badly, even though I was so fit. Uh, and the, the lesson learned for me on that was that you can't... You, there's no point in, in, in talking about going into missions or, or, or going into any kind of a task unless you have a good level of preparation for it. So that when you get a, a call, call to arms, let's say, that you can change over really, really quickly to that. Uh, and and that's, I suppose that would have been where, I, where I'm coming from in terms of what the knowledge that I can then give back to people here in, in, in the school. Yeah. And, and in your experience, say, over the last, say, 20 years or so and, and during your career, how have you seen military fitness and the concept of it and, and how we achieve it, how, how has that evolved for you? Yeah, well, I think the more things change, the more things stay the same. And, and, and when we talk about combat fitness, all the skills, they, they were there from day one and they're still there, they don't change. I think what has changed is the science behind it. So it, we've definitely developed in terms of our induction when we bring in young soldiers to get them to the point of where they're actually trained soldiers. Uh, I think even when I come in as a recruit, right from day one you were just launched into everything uh, and you know some people will naturally take on the skills others won't uh, and a lot of people will lose confidence by 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 not having a good level of the skills naturally where others have and an example even for myself was as a recruit um i remember we used to have to walk up the stairs upstairs into our in, into our block but we always had to come down a rope so the very first day that we had to come down the rope um I, I slid down the rope, so I took all the skin off my hands. And like I was obviously berated for that. When, uh, you know, I had to go down to the hospital, bandages on my hands and stuff like that. But what always struck a chord with me right from then, and something that I learned was that, you know, no one, no, everyone just assumed I knew how to come down the rope. Well, I didn't know how to come down the rope. Uh, and another example would have been uh, orienteering. So when we talk about the skills, I, I again, I was... Uh, only a young young private had very little navigational experience and there was an all-army orienteering event uh, coming up and as you would know say you're in the tour battalion you're just thrown into a truck and off you go and the, the learning experience for me on that was that two o'clock in the morning when everyone was still looking for me out yeah. in the forest <laughs> that uh, here hold on no one really sh you know showed me how to do this and now I felt really embarrassed and humiliated and I think for me personally I had to go away and have a think about things and it was my own self-motivation 
and drive that that I rectified those things. So I became quite good at navigation after that and started competing in terms of orienteering and mountain martins and stuff like that. And, you know, the skills, the military skills, I said, right, I'm never going to get caught again where, you know, I could have an accident while, while carrying out a skill by not knowing how to do it. So I had to go in and do a lot of that myself. I think now it's different. We have a system now where you come in and there's a process. You start at the basics. You're shown a very simple movement. It might be a vault, the vault over an obstacle. You're shown the very basic version of that. What you do then is you break it down into parts. You put people under no pressure whatsoever to learn those skills and um, over time then you start to progress them and I suppose an example would be your uh, obstacle course we would have always called it an assault course but really what it is is a military skills development course and only when you're up at a good level then does it become an actual obstacle course or assault course because it's only at that point when people have gone through the whole process are they in a position to be put under pressure or, or pressurised into, into performing right from the start so I'd say that would be one example of where we've moved on. Yeah. There's, there's a process there. It's a little bit more scientific. The skills are still there, but it's how we do them is a little bit different. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And, like, with regards to sort of military fitness, and I remember when, when, I, when I was doing my cadetship, you, you came out of it and you'd kind of go all day with sort of the way it was. And like, as in, if you, if you were to compare someone who is military fit to someone who, say, goes to the gym an awful lot or, say, someone out in outside the military that runs a lot of say martins or half martins yeah. or that kind of thing like what's the, what's the key difference between a, f a combat fit soldier and someone who's fit outside normally yeah well i think uh when you're outside in any sport be an athlete or a sporting organization you have the choice you you can step away and you can say no this is not for me when it comes to the crunch and you really have to perform you can step away if you want to step away. It's not the end of the world. I think the big difference is, as a soldier, you're, you can't step away. Um, the second you step away, it could cost someone else their life. It could cost you your life as well. And that has to be the mentality, the overall overriding mentality. And that is the mentality. And even for me to say, when, when I came, came back to the Ranger Wing, having left it, um, I would have found that even just having military gear on me again, having to carry stuff, being tired, being dehydrated, all of those things caught me, and I had to make myself mentally tough to be able to, to, to cope with that you know, as, as time went on. So ultimately, I would say that the big, big difference is that lives depend on it. Uh, you become a liability other than that. Outside of that, I think you have a choice. Fantastic. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's fascinating. That kind of leads us on as well to sort of like that idea of building of mental strength as well. Because it just seems like an appropriate time to kind of talk about what we, we were speaking about. So like the link between physical fitness and building mental strength and how yeah. important that is to being operationally successful as well. I, I mean, like yeah. within, say, if you were planning a um, military fitness session of some type, would you yeah. build in that kind of thing where you're testing someone's mental capacity as well as you go? Yeah, I, I think that uh, uh, we could tie that in with the difference between military and civilian as well, is, is that if... if if you're not mentally strong, you're not, you, 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 everything else will fail anyways. So we talked about mil, mil, or mental, technical, tactical and physical. You can't have one without the, the other really. Um, so if you're not mentally strong or you don't have coping strategies when you're put under pressure, uh, especially in, in military terms, you, you're, you're going to fail. Um, and like, say the process of, say, somebody coming through the gate, so I'm sure we've plenty of people out there listening to the show and they're thinking maybe that they might like to undertake a career in the military like the way we all have done. Um, starting from the very bottom, where do you go from people? So if someone comes through the gate, what happens as regards planning their military fitness journey? Well, I think initially you come in as a recruiter, a cadet. I mean, there's a syllabus there uh, and there's a programme of training already in place. And as I said, that programme of training is now scientific uh, and, and, and it's step by step. But having said all that, um, I think that 
and it's tied in with the questions you've asked me previously, another difference is that sometimes a soldier science has to go out the window. So while we start at, at the process, at the very basic level, and take everything step by step, um, we obviously crawl, then we, we, we walk, and then we run. When we reach that point where people have the skills, people have the knowledge, people have the fitness levels built up, um, that's the point there where sometimes you have to step out of science, sleep deprivation, performing while you're tired, performing while you're dehydrated. But obviously, uh, permitting recuperation and recovery once that phase is over. But uh, yeah, everything is step by step to a point. And then at yeah. times we have to step out. So I suppose like when you're talking about, say, when you classically think of developing people for elite sports, say, at people that are people training for huge competitions like, like Olympians, they're training yeah. to perform at their peak. Yeah. Yeah. physical performance at a certain time on a certain date in a competition yeah. but we are training to be in such a way that we can perform under tremendous pressure we can perform when we're not in our peak performance and, and this is part this is all part of the process yeah well i would say that if if we were just to put soldiers on training programs and work them scientifically um over a period of time i would say soldiers would get soft so yes i agree with with science and we've moved on an awful lot since i first came into the military but i also believe that at certain times we have to step out of science and push on. That's not always necessarily the situation in, in, in outside sports or, out, or outside athletes. Yeah, yeah, 100%. No, it, it makes perfect sense. And like, say, I, I remember coming in originally and like you'd be started off in fairly kind of easy runs and that kind of thing. But I mean, talk, can you talk a bit about the kind of the build up as well, that un, those unique sort of sessions, like your battle PTs and that kind of stuff that you see in the military that like you wouldn't see, like yeah. nobody else in my experience does that type of training. Yeah, yeah, I suppose when we talk about the military skills, there are quite a lot of them. Um, but there are also functional movements as well. So we talk about crawling, jumping and landing, climbing, scaling, balancing. They're all functional movements that we do day to, Well, we obviously don't crawl day to day, but they're functional movements, uh, and, and they're movements that our bodies are capable of doing. Uh, if we just take out crawling, for example, crawling is one of the most difficult things that you'll ever do. Uh, it'll become even more difficult if you have to crawl, dragging a casualty out with you out of a situation. Um, and again, we're back to the scenarios. We have, to, we have to take someone in from induction level, a young soldier. They're not very strong. Uh, they, they need time, they need work, and they need, they need, I suppose, they need to be hit with that process of not only their military side of things, but the, the physical requirements of what they're going to be expected to do ultimately in, in combat if, if, if they ever find themselves in that situation. So again, step, step by step. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, just in general, for, the, for like the organization in general, we might kind of open up a bit, like the, the importance to, f to physical fitness in the Defence Forces ethos and in our values. Um, like can we speak a bit, a bit to that? And, and it's, it's a common thing in militaries across the world where like physical fitness is a huge part of the identity of the organization. I think I suppose the, the basis of what you expect from a soldier and the first, I suppose, attribute that they should have is, is being physically fit. And exactly as Sergeant McGuire said, you go in a, a demanding overseas environment um, or whatever it might be, your physical fitness is, is probably the first thing that will, will get you through um, in demanding situations. And those who are physically fit can cope better with um, demanding situations, with mental um, fatigue that, that will come on them or, or with sleep deprivation, etc., etc. So you'll find the people who have better levels and particularly of military fitness will cope better in those situations. So I think for, for us in, in the training environment, you're always trying to create that situation for what the worst case situation that you might find yourself in. And I think that's unique, obviously, to the organization. And that's why we have annual fitness tests, why we require people to maintain a level 
of fitness that you wouldn't see in other um, civilian organisations. And for that, then, obviously, that, that brings into play why we have a physical um, education school, why we have the likes of EMER and a specialised um, support mechanism. And that's where, where Sergeant McGuire is talking about. Sometimes you need to come away from the science. I think the science then where that comes into play is who are the supporting actors. So like where we can get the likes of EMA in and it's a new enough initiative where we've got the physiotherapists within the organisation. There's a better understanding from EMA now because she's currently and, and has been working with a military population and maybe it's something that we'll develop more throughout the conversation. The injuries that you'd get within a military context are going to be much different than, than what they would be um, you know, out in, in a sporting context or, or, or whatever the case might be. What I actually found interesting, and I'm going to jump slightly aside here, when you talk about um, crawling, I have a nephew uh, who, who never crawled as, as a baby. And because of that, they, mi- they missed out on a complete fundamental skill, that, that, uh, that unilateral link. Um, so, and I've seen it actually, and it's only now when I look back, I've seen it in, in training where certain recruits couldn't crawl properly because it was a skill they never developed as a child. So even though, Jim, you say that uh, this isn't something that we do day to day, at a point in our life, we develop that skill. And if it's missing, it becomes very apparent for somebody who, who hasn't that developed that skill. And it's a huge injury risk, isn't it, Emer, like that someone who hasn't developed fully? Absolutely. And I think um, military, military fitness will show it up. So again, um, studies back up exactly what, what you say there is that the leading cause of attrition, so the leading cause of being unable to pass, let's say, the first year of military training, uh, internationally across all militaries is uh, physical fitness, being unable to maintain uh, kind of levels of fit- physical fitness and um, avoidance of injury. And um, a lack of physical fitness actually feeds into um, predisposition to injury as well. So like that, somebody who hasn't attained basic skills th- throughout their development, throughout their childhood and adolescence um, may run into difficulty when they under- undertake um, the robust military training. Um, so I think the science is actually backing up exactly what you see on the ground at the coalface dealing with recruits and dealing with uh, young military soldiers. Just as regards, say, that idea of coming in as a young recruit and, and like, being developed and, like, we, we talk about, like, exceeding expectations. I mean, can, can we talk a bit about, about that, about how, how the kind of machine of military fitness that it will bring you in and it will cause you to do things you probably never knew you could do? Yeah, so um, I suppose like everybody comes in with an expectation of, of what the organisation is about, but then when they're actually in it, 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 it might be something completely different. And as, as Jim has alluded to already, um, you know, you come in and you create this environment and you, you, you push people to their max potential. And I think people are surprised with what they, they, they can achieve. Like I think anyone that you're going to put into a structured training environment over a prolonged period of time, be it recruits where it's it's 15 weeks or a cadetship where it's, it's, it's 15 months. For a lot of people, they'll never have been in, in such a controlled training environment where the, you know, their, their physical training is controlled, the lectures that they do day to day, the nutrition that they take on, everything is, is so controlled. Even the, the sleeping patterns that they have are controlled. But in terms of, of, of the tactical athletes, like, you, obviously you're, you're fostering that as best you can or you're, you're developing that as best you can from, from day one through to when they complete their training and not just when they complete their training and this is important like when we take in someone and they complete their training that's not the end of, of military fitness for them they're going to have different points in their career where they're going to do physical courses be it through the other ranks where they do uh, a POTS course or a standard course or 
for, for officers if they go on and they do a, a YO's course. So throughout your career, you will constantly be developing your, your military fitness. And, and obviously through the, the annual fitness test as well, where you've got uh, a more, you know, probably normalized fitness test uh, components, but you've also got a military piece in part three where you do a, a terrain walk as well. But um, I think that people seriously surpass their expectations very early on. And even you see the success rates when they come up and they do the assault courses, as Jim's alluded to already, people get a real sense of satisfaction out of that when they might overcome, uh, you know, different fears that they had on heights or, you know, the team building aspect that you can really develop that through the likes of the obstacle course and, and the whole military training as a whole. And you see all these attributes that, you know, outside companies would look at. Like you can develop that really, really well through, through physical education within, within the organization, be it, you know, leadership, team building, cooperation, all these attributes that are, that are really, you know, important uh, for an individual's development. They can be very much put through in, in, in a physical context, you know. Uh, could I jump into that, yeah, Kane, there as well? Uh, I would be someone now, I'd have a fear of heights. Uh, and uh, it was a stumbling block for me initially till I put me on coping strategy together. And my coping strategy was, look, I don't care what happens to me. If I get up there, if I to jump over a plane, that's what I do. That was my coping strategy and it worked for me. But uh, what, what, I f what, what I think is that um, I had that when I came into the army and I knew that I had that fear. Um, and I went from, that, from, from, from the having that fear to actually being able to do things comfortably. Uh, getting up onto heights comfortably, abseil, parachute, whatever it is I had to do, I was able to do that comfortably. The reason I was able to do it comfortably after the initial fear was that I was doing it fairly regularly. So I haven't been doing that regularly now. If I went back to it now, I would have that initial fear again. I'd struggle for a while. But once I got exposed to it again, uh, I'd get comfortable again and it wouldn't be a problem for me. So when we get young soldiers in, uh, and we find it on our, 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 our military skills development course initially for them. We, we find that you'll have people that will, you know, um, they'll struggle with heights, they'll struggle with tight spaces. Uh, and we have to get them from the point of struggling to actually doing it comfortably without even thinking. And, that, and I know even for me personally, what a major achievement for me to have an, an absolute fear of, of heights, to be able to jump over an airplane and not cost me a thought. Uh, I mean, that's what the military did for me. Uh, along, uh, along with a lot of other things. I, I think that when we get young soldiers in, you'll, you'll get young soldiers in that have a background in, in, in exercise and fitness, maybe team sports, but you'll get, you'll get young soldiers that have none whatsoever. So there's a big, big difference between all of them right at the very, very start. And I suppose our job is to get them from that huge difference to actually bringing them all together and most of them being more or less at the same level at, at, at the end of their initial training. Yeah. And, and, and only then can you call someone a trained soldier when you have them at that point. Yeah, yeah. I suppose that links as well. I mean, it's an interesting point you make as well about learning to do things that you couldn't have done before, like, like getting over your fear of heights. Like that's part of that building of mental strength and of, of, deve yeah. of development that yeah. the military and, and militaries have always sort of claimed to, 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 to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, if I, if I had backed away from that inside of me, I would have always known, yeah, you, you're a good soldier, but you're... you're you won't jump over a plane or you won't abseil off. You won't do some of the skills that you're supposed to be able to do. The same, I wasn't a good swimmer. So I said, right, I have to be a swimmer because swimming is a military skill. So I went off and, and that's, that's what I did. I make sure, made sure that I could swim. Uh, so I what I would say as well, I would say in the military, 
you've got an awful lot of really driven people and, and I don't mean externally driven I mean in, internally driven they have a drive to succeed there's huge competition levels within, within the military people become competitive and part of the reason they become competitive is be, because we put them into that environment we put them into a robust environment where they're competitive against each other where they're competitive against other groups and it becomes inherent in them then they don't even have to think about it anymore and I think one of the huge stressors in things is if you have to think about things you might start overthinking but if you've been if you've been exposed to things time and time again and exposed in the right way that you're developing, these things become automatic. You don't even have to think about them. So again, you, when other stressors come in play, then, well, at least the basic ones, you already have them at a level you don't have to think about them. Yeah. So I think it's really good. What we are very good in the military is that when we reach that point of being able to do things automatic, we're really able to think on our feet then if we're hit, hit with anything outside of that because that's something in the military where we're hit at we're, we're coming from so many different, so many different angles. Yeah. And I'd even given you an example. I remember in the noughties there, um, we, we, there was talk of the prison service going, going on strike. And I remember we had 2,000 soldiers come through, here, come through the school here over a period of four, four weeks where we brought them all up to speed and uh, unarmed, or sorry, restraints and arrest. You know, I mean, and people went away haven't already had a basic knowledge of unarmed combat, but went away with an extra skill of restraints and arrest. But again, this was something that just came on us all of a sudden. We could have been called into the prisons just like that. And there's other exigencies as well for us that, you know, they just could come up at a moment's notice and we have to be prepared to deal with that. Yeah. We might move on and just talk. So when we're in that really sort of intense physical training environment, that is military fitness. Like, how do we... How do we kind of like? Is that something we maintain all the time, or is that something we need? We need to kind of come down off a small, but we come off a career course and come off an operation. How do we? How do we do that? Yeah, I, I, I suppose the soldiers uh, were year round. So when we talk about periodization, uh, we're all year round. Um, so we would have phases where it's high intensity. Uh, we'd have breaks from that, and we come back at it. So I suppose we bring people to a, a level. Uh, a consistent level then we maintain that level then we maybe break for a while uh, fitness levels will drop a little bit and we'll, we, we'll go again then uh, one of the major features of that is and I think it's the same in the sporting world as well where performance uh, recovery and recreation is the three of those are linked together and again I think if you fall down in any area you're going to struggle because it's all good to be performing all the time but then we're, we're risking overtraining uh, we're risking burnout we're uh, risk of mental fatigue uh, as we all know recovery is hugely important it's one thing uh, carrying out the physical exercise it, the next thing is, is to make yourself stronger and fitter when, when, when you're recovering but to keep things right recreation is hugely important uh, traditionally in the military and we, we initially uh, have worked from British Army Doctrine right from the Second World War where their training is so intense that there had to be a pullback from that um, to, to give people the chance to pull back, have a little bit of fun, but it's manipulated fun where, where you control it. You allow them to relax, allow them to have a little bit of fun. Again, it's control. Well, we're not, we've carried that on and we still implement it. Uh, and traditionally, a Wednesday afternoon will be recreational training in the military. And uh, the reason for that is when training is hard and training is intense, soldiers get a chance to pull back a little bit, have a little bit of fun and a bit of crack with each other, okay, and then switch back into high intensity again. But we get a lot from that. We get team bonding from it. We get recovery from intense exercise. We keep people enthusiastic by giving them 
different types of activities. You know, if it's soccer, badminton, it can be volleyball, we even have fishing, we have every kind of thing. Anything at all that breaks away from the normal uh, intensity of military skills and combat fitness. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And it's, it's a strange one too, like, because I, I never played volleyball before actually joining the military, and it's not necessarily yeah. something you think that you'd associate with joining the army, but like, it is something that's done overseas a lot, and there yeah. is a lot, it's, and overseas, which is an intense operational environment, there is yeah. a lot of recreational training, and there's always yeah. tag rugby organisers, there's in the evenings when you're not on duty, yeah. or there's something like that, like, yeah. Uh, and even for me, say, I had never been in the Sleeve Blue Mountains, so the first 10 or 15 times I was in the Sleeve Blue Mountains, it was all in a tactical sense, uh, and I was under pressure, and you never really got to enjoy the environment, so it was great for me then further on down the road, maybe, to, to, to get out on a recreational walk, hill walk, where we didn't have to think about military, we didn't have to think about things, and actually enjoy the surroundings, but also reflect back and say, oh God, I struggled here, or this was yeah. hard, or whatever, you know? And, and, but even, even, I suppose, in the military, and, and it, 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 I suppose, shared pain and shared stress and all of those things, it's really, really good for mental health to be able to reflect on those and have a laugh about them and have a joke about them. And I suppose the, the hill walking would be a small example of getting out into an area and enjoying the surroundings that you once felt pain in. And you're, you're walking with people now that actually felt that pain with you. And the camaraderie from that and the mel mental health that we get from, or the mental, uh, I suppose, uh, freshness we get from able to say, well, look, that was tough. But we're really enjoying this now as well. You yeah, know? and you kind of get to unpack it, and that's kind of yeah, another yeah, thing we yeah. wanted to sort of talk about was like that idea of mental wellness and how you sort of how you link physical fitness to to mental wellness and to mental health. Yeah, and it's an interesting point you make about you're going through an area where you felt a lot of pain, and now you're just kind of thinking about that and going, yeah, well, I'm not yeah. feeling pain right now, and it's not so bad right <laughs> and now. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but we might expand a bit more on that link between say mental health and and physical fitness, and it's it's a common thing outside now in a lot of. Um, professional companies outside that, that they encourage physical fitness amongst their employees because it has a positive impact on their mental health. Yeah, so I, I suppose I'll jump in there because I'm um, an active member of the, the Mental Health and Wellbeing Group, um, which heads up the strategy for the Defence Forces and it's in its, in its uh, infancy really, you know, but um, uh, I suppose jumping back a slight little bit, you look at corporations outside their, you know, multi-million investment into physical be it uh, gym, the actual infrastructure that they're bringing into the facilities or, or bringing in uh, instructors from the outside that are, are running, you know, couch to 5k type programs or yoga or whatever it might be. So they're recognizing that and obviously ourselves as well, we've, we've over the years put huge um, focus on, on, on mental health and well-being. And obviously, you know, the science would say that somebody who is physically active is much more likely to, to have a good mental state or uh, um, be, uh, you know, much more mentally healthy. Um, so currently, as I said to you, um, uh, the, the Defence Forces is putting a lot of energy into the, the mental health and well-being strategy. And there's a number of uh, significant influence bodies like EMERS involved with the group as well, coming from the physio side, obviously ourselves, from the, uh, the physical education side. You've got um, the, the likes of the chaplaincy, you've got PSS, um, and you've got the, the medical side of the house who are all on board with the strategy and how best to implement for our people um, uh, you know, an environment and a professional entity that supports uh, mental health, because obviously we, we all can associate with people who, who have struggled with their mental health and the, 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 the effects that it has. So there's some excellent support mechanisms currently there, but the, the strategy is looking as to how to, to improve those strategies. And, and from our own side, obviously, it would, and, and linking back to what Sergeant McGuire has said, you know, that recreation piece is very important. 
um, we're unique in that even we have a, a physical education doctrine that that supports unit commanders where they can program three structured physical education um, uh, blocks in the week, if, if you want to call it that, and then what we call, you know, more commonly known to the soldier, um, this recreational period on Wednesday afternoon where you go away and you do a sport that, that will, you know... Um, take your mind off, off the working profession and, and give you something else as an outlet outside, outside of work. And I suppose by our nature, we attract more um, people who are interested in sport and, and, and of a physical nature into the profession. So I suppose we have to give something back to those eager beavers as well, rather than locking them into the office and, uh, and, and, and you know, pushing them hard on that side. So, um, yeah, there's some really good work been, been done there. Yeah, and I think I see that from the clinical side as well, is, um, you know, so much about the, the soldier's person is their, their physical robustness. And when, um, when they sustain injury, they don't only sustain the physical injury, they sustain almost a mental, mental injury as well in that their outlet, their physical activity is removed from them to some degree um, and they undergo mental challenge. And all of the science uh, backs up the uh, integration of that, that mind-body connection of healthy lifestyle, healthy level of activity really bolsters that mental health as well. So the two really do uh, go in tandem and are very connected. Yeah. No, and like as we said, we do hear about that a lot outside as well, you know. So I mean, that makes makes perfect sense. Um, I suppose just just to turn to you, Imran. I want to talk a bit about the development of the Defence Forces um, physiotherapists um, network or the Defence Forces physiotherapists. Like originally, when I would have come into the organisation, we, we didn't actually have physiotherapists in house, but there has been a program put in place now over the last number of years. Do you want to kind of talk us through it? That's it. So I was, um, I suppose I was I was hired in 2015 to put in place a, a service that would uh, provide physiotherapy to the members of the Defence Forces. So uh, for approximately the first nine months, I went about kind of looking at what were the needs of the Defence Forces, what were the needs in military, and uh, putting place a system whereby we would continue to develop um, a, physio- a military physiotherapy system, which is quite unique um, to, say, maybe kind of private clinics or that. So... Um, Uh, We established a small team of physiotherapists uh, who are civilians, but they work with uh, military uh, patients at all times. And uh, we've been able to develop expertise within the team then specifically in relation to military physiotherapy. Um, And I suppose kind of coming back to the points that we've covered already, some of the things that we'd see would be, you know, sometimes quite significant injury and the soldier very much has a drive to get back to his or her um, occupation. Um, So there's an occupational physiotherapy uh, element to it, as well as that elite, I suppose what you could draw from a civilian point of view would be that that elite sports setting almost as well, Um, as well as uh, from a physiotherapy perspective, musculoskeletal uh, triage as well. So it's kind of a a mix of those three specialities in one, um, but military physiotherapy is its own entity internationally as well. And... um, and it, you know, it is quite well researched uh, around around the globe. And like, as regards the sort of the sort of injuries that you would see a lot of, like, what's the kind of profile that you would see coming into you? Yeah. So when when we re- or when I originally set it up, um, I uh, developed an injury surveillance system, um, whereby every uh, member that would come in, we again, it all goes into an audit system. So. Uh, we kind of use a, a thing called an OODA loop, observation, orientate, uh, decide and act. So we've been observing what kind of injuries are, are our soldiers getting um, and we're just 
drawing that information now, which is about five five years worth of data now, uh, and we can we've been able to find out that approximately thirty percent of injuries involve you know the spine. Now again, these could be minor or, or more significant injuries, and fifty percent are lower limb. So again, if we have a, a lower limb injury, potentially this person can't run. Um, and that ties in with the occupational nature and the rehabilitation uh, and then approximately 20% or so is is to the upper limb as well so we're at a point now where we've kind of we're progressing from our observation stage in terms of learning what is unique and specifically what's unique to um, the Irish Defence Forces um, which is actually very similar to international uh, military uh, injury rates and uh, what can we do about it now and just Bring, like that, bringing the science to bear to try and mitigate injury as much as possible and promote that that uh, kind of robust training, um, but in the safest way, way possible, where we can keep our soldiers uh, kind of active and, and fitter and on duty for longer. Yeah, and I suppose like kind of a lot of rehabilitation programs as well, and sort of taking a kind of you know taking those injuries. I know I've 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 used the service myself in the past, and it is it's a great way you're you're kept active while you rebuild. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's really a case of getting that buy-in for the soldier. Um, the soldier mindset, I feel that's it. They're very focused on what can I do? They're very focused on doing things that will improve the situation uh, to try and overcome the challenge of the injury that they have, uh, which I think is a, is a fantastic um, uh, thing as a, as a clinician to have in your patient, that they're incredibly motivated. And I think that's that natural leadership that... Uh, the defence forces instills in their personnel, um, and I think it's it's us just guiding them then through that through that re- rehabilitation. Um, so yeah, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> I think uh, yeah. just to jump in there, I think what's important, and and this is why even we have a physical education working group with which Emer's involved in, and uh, we advise to uh, DJ Seven who would be responsible for all training within the defence forces. So I know Emer would advocate that um, prevention is obviously better than cure. And, and even with Jim, they're talking about the unique thing about the military is that you, you develop, you know, this int- intrinsic motivation and, and this response where I kind of jump first and think after. Um, but we obviously then have to protect the individual that they don't end up getting injured when, um, when, when this is the case. So to link back then again to the, the training policies that, that are in place or what we call training instructions that are in place, if we deem that there is a high risk due to whatever type of training that is in place, that we as a professional body will advise to, to the, the director of training and that we will change the way that we do business. And, and for example, myself, when I did uh, my master's and, and Emer would have supported me on this, um, we would have looked at prehabilitation. So basically bringing in um, an injury prevention mechanism into the, the, the recruits training. And, and this is implemented in, in a lot of training environments now that wasn't before, where you try and improve uh, a recruit's basic movement patterns, um, which would then lower the risk of, of injury. So like that, that working group, with bigger militaries, what you'd actually have is a, almost like um, a sports science department where they, they have a, a more you know, unified and, and, and direct line on this. But obviously, smaller militaries, we've got to work within, within the, the, the constraints that we have. But we would work quite close together and, and we would influence positive change on training doctrines to obviously reduce injury risk would be one of the key things that we look at. Absolutely, and we're tying in with top Irish universities as well on that, like that developing, I suppose, specific stuff for the Irish setting, uh, as opposed to kind of retrofitting maybe international stuff to the Irish yeah. setting, which can be done as well. But like that, I, I do think it's a, it's a 
a thing we're progressing on over time. So from, I suppose, from the physio perspective, we're five years down the line, but there's much, much more work to do over the next five, five to ten years. So, yeah, what, from, from your perspective, you were like, what would be one of like the cornerstones of military fitness from people that are coming into you? Um, so one of the cornerstones that, that uh, we've been looking into more in more recent uh, times is just the basic body composition. So it's something that everyone has. Um, everyone is made up of a, a skeletal muscle mass, so how much muscle is on your body, and also kind of a fat mass, just to break it down even just into two, two uh, sections. Um, and it's been found across uh, kind of international studies a military body composition is actually quite unique by comparison to what would be classed as a healthy civilian body composition. There is overlap, um, but typically what you want to see in uh, your kind of robust soldier is a much higher level of uh, skeletal muscle mass, so much more uh, muscle bulk. And that just ties in with just sheer strength. You need your soldier to be strong. One of the fundamental tasks that every soldier has to undertake is load carriage. And there is a, a finite, um, I suppose, limit that if somebody is simply too light uh, or not carrying enough skeletal muscle mass, they, they simply may not be able to undertake the kind of load carriage task a standard soldier will have to undertake. Um, so that would be one of the key features. And then a moderate amount of fat mass uh, would actually be, uh, is found to be beneficial for military task performance. Um, so um, depending on what that uh, soldier's task may be, um, sometimes uh, withstanding levels of kind of adverse training, as Sergeant McGuire has, has discussed uh, previously, is that sometimes your uh, the training is so intense that... Uh, the, there is an inability to actually take in enough calorie intake, so enough nutrition to offset for the amount of energy burn because the courses or the training can be that intense. And therefore, when the body is pushed to the limit, which is what military training is designed to do, it, it will naturally shed the fat mass sooner than the muscle mass. And, and that just means that if somebody isn't carrying maybe as much fat mass it's going to be the skeletal muscle mass that's going to be shed sooner um, so that's why I'd encourage I suppose as a general term would be I'd uh, always recommend that soldiers training for maybe very intense specialised courses wouldn't go in uh, with a very low fat mass that may in fact harm them yeah, I mean, that's interesting too. their performance. I suppose yeah. that's interesting too, given sort of maybe modern aesthetics or modern kind of like what people people are looking Absolutely. to be ripped all the time and that kind of stuff. But uh, you're absolutely. saying for military yeah. robustness, that mightn't be the best way to do things. That's it, absolutely. It ties in with the international studies that there does seem to be kind of, there can be an image aspect to the physical, you know, uh, aspect of, of being a soldier. But sometimes the reality is that you want large ma muscle mass and a moderate amount of fat mass to really be um, uh, very functional. Oh, that's that's actually that's very interesting. In fairness, um, thanks very much, Emma, for, for that. that. That was that was a really good answer to that question, actually. But um, just at this point in the podcast, we're, we're just going to have a little change of personnel at the moment. And Emer um, and Comment Lady are going to stay with us. But uh, Sergeant McGuire, thanks very very much for coming on. It was really really fascinating to talk okay. to you. And thanks, it, it was brilliant. And we might take a quick pause there, and we we welcome on uh, Lieutenant Paul Murphy. 
So, as I said, we've had a bit of a change around in, in, in personnel, and, and um, we welcome on now uh, Lieutenant Paul Murphy, uh, former Kilkenny Intercounty Hurler, and, and as I said at the start, and he, he always loves me to say it, a uh, four-time All-Star. Um, so, welcome on, Paul. Thanks <laughs> very much for coming on. Thanks very much. Um, do you want to, I've obviously given, given a kind of a background to your, uh, to your sporting career to a certain extent, but do you want to just give everybody a background of like, your military career and kind of what made you join the Defence Forces and that kind of thing? Yeah, um, so I joined the Defence Forces in 2008 as a recruit in Limerick. Um, probably didn't know a whole lot about the Defence Forces before coming in, really was looking at the, the route of the Defence Forces or the Guards, that's, that's the way generally I was inclined. Um, so I joined the Defence Forces and, you know, there was no members of my family really in the Defence Forces, so I joined it quite blindly really, which I think, you know, a lot of people can relate to. Um, but I uh, progressed on, did three overseas trips, one to Chad, two to Lebanon, and was commissioned with the 10th Potential Officers uh, class in 2019. Um, done a variety of courses. I'm an APC crewman, uh, counter ID instructor, ILSW instructor, a variety of weapons and so on. So, um, you know, I, I think a very wide ranging uh, military career up to now. And uh, I suppose a military career that has really benefited both my sporting career and likewise my sporting career has really benefited um, my Defence Forces career just with, I suppose, the crossover and being a member of a team sport, being physically demanding and, and, and the different um, demands that are placed on both. So, yeah, just in the Defence Force now, almost 13 years and, uh, you know, a great future ahead of me also. And still going strong, exactly. Like, um, just with regard to that, from a kind of an athletic perspective and from your sporting career, like, as in, like, what has your experience been of sport in the defence force? Because it's something we haven't touched on yet. But like, the defence force has a long and storied history of having athletes in the organisation and supporting sport. Yeah, um, I, l like I said, you know, um, sport was a great tool for me in the defence forces because I came in not really knowing what the army was about and what to expect in training. And I think I, I, I probably undersold myself in thinking that, you know, I'm not going to be fit enough to, to, to you know, handle the people that are going to be in here. You know, the, the people I'll be training with will probably have parents that were in the defence forces or, you know, you have this idea, you don't really know what to expect. But my career from sport actually had me in a great position to come in because I'd, I'd experienced the stress of sport, the stress of having to perform. My Physically, I was in a good position to come in, I had a good foundation of fitness. But I think... What, one thing that was really crucial for me, when I, which I figured out when I, when I came into training, was that stress is obviously placed on you quickly. You know, you go out on battle PTs and you're expected to do these very demanding things. And I had this experience of um, having trained with adult teams since I was maybe 15 or 16 and not kind of giving up. This thing of, you know, I don't want to stop running because my teammates are here. I don't want to give up, even though that voice in your head is telling you to give up. So when I went into training, I kind of realized, you know, you'd see a lad drop out of a battle PT, which is understandable through injury or through whatever. But I kind of had this little foundation and I could see that in other people who had played sports or other people who had done running or boxing or whatever it was they kind of had this experience also working as part of a team I found it was really helpful and I think as well a huge thing that was beneficial was it, it helped you meet people as well because obviously the community you're in mine was the GAA um, it allowed you to I suppose you, you might come across a CQ within a barracks that is actually a member of a club and you got in conversation with them and you got to know them so there was also the community part of it like the Defence Force itself is a huge community but you were then part of the GA community within the Defence Forces also. So that's really where my sporting career helped me. It helped me physically within training, mentally within training, and also meet people and engage with people throughout the, throughout the Defence Forces that you probably would have never met only for you had this, this, this common connection of, of the GA. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, I mean that's fantastic. And it's a, thing, it's a thing that we do here, the people that have played a bit of team sport and that kind of thing, are, they, they phase in quite, quite well into a military career. As regards, say, your own kind of the process of becoming military fit on you compared to say you were obviously playing a high level of sport before you came in like what was that process like for you in your own performance 
Yeah, I would have. So obviously played a multi-directional sport, which, you know, I'm very good at sprinting. I was very fast. I was strong because, you know, in hurling, you'd have to get to a place and tackle a fella or a shoulder or, you know, and uh, physically that way. But then, you know, we would have had to do long range walks, a lot slower pace, but you now would wait on your back and you had to deal with this endurance and also maybe 10K runs. So this was something that I wasn't, it wasn't a strong point for me. Um, and it was something that I had to build upon. And it was a kind of realization for me that, okay, you know, I'm, I'm able to go 70 minutes on a hurling pitch, but that's different now. Now I have a backpack on my back and I have a weapon and I have these pair of boots that are heavier than my hurling boots and I'm dehydrated now and how do I manage my water? So it was this level of fitness that I had to um, bring in, but it was something I was also interested in because I had this curiosity of, you know, I've learned so much from GA and hurling that this was now new strains in my body. My body was learning how to deal with it. I was seeing physical change in myself. So that was always something that I was really curious about, you know, and Sergeant McGuire was even saying it that, you know, people are very internally driven and that's something I was and it was kind of a curiosity as well that where can I push myself to now? And this, this idea of where can I push my body, which I think a lot of people in the Defence Forces have that interest, you know, of how far can I go? How far can I run? What way can I do? And I um, put on fast. <laughs> so that's kind of where my sport and my military career crossed over. I believe the sport had me in a great, a good foundation when I came in, but I had a lot to learn about musical, uh, military fitness, and that was a huge thing. By no means was I coming in thinking this is easy. I don't think anybody came into Defence Forces and thought this physical training is easy. So that's where I feel that my sport had me in a good mental and physical position, but I had a lot to learn coming into it. Yeah, yeah. And for, for yourself, sir, uh, Colin Lettingham, like you, you mentioned a story that like you, you came from, a, from an athletics background. And it, it's a, it's a, what kind of distance running is it that you would have come in from? Yeah, so I suppose um, when, when I was much, much younger, I would have done a lot of cross country because actually during the summer I would have been show jumping. We come from a strong tradition of, uh, of uh, horse background, you know, and actually my uncle was in, in the Defence Forces and he would have been in the equitation school. And he would have had huge success. He would have uh, rode in Saul in 88. He qualified for uh, Atlanta in, in 92. Unfortunately, he didn't compete there because his horse uh, picked up a virus. And they would have won. He would have won many, um, uh, been on many Aga Khan uh, teams and um, would have won many other competitions. So through, through that real prosperous area of the, of the equitation school through the, through the 90s. And so, like, that would really been as much exposure I would have had to the defence forces and what, what it would have been about. And then I kind of found that I excelled more on my two legs rather than, than on four and uh, would have started then running um, track races over 800, 1500 and I'd have won a number of uh, national titles. And then underage, I would have travelled abroad to international competitions. And in fact, um, my coach um, at the time who travelled with, with my uncle uh, to, to Saul in 88, Brendan Quinn, he was very strong and pushing me towards going for a scholarship to the States. And there was just something about the military at that point that, that grabbed my attention. And, and Paul kind of alluded to it there earlier that it was almost like another challenge that you could compete, you know, with, within yourself, within the organization. And then there was probably part of me as well of thought, you know, what comes after sport? Like what will, you know, be your interests after sport and what will you get involved in? And that's definitely something that, that drew me into the, into the organization. And then, um, interestingly, as, as, as Emer said, like I, I chose that path. I went and I, I applied for a cadetship and was successful and came in. And I joined the cadets as a 68-kilo uh, naive uh, young lad who, who was competitive as a runner, but uh, put, put a, a backpack on your, on your back and it changed things completely. 
but just as 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 Emer was discussing that, um, like my my body composition changed over over time within the cadet school, as most people would have. And uh, I left the cadet school at eighty two kilos, and it wasn't that I had fat mass built up; it was it was muscle mass, and it was the demands of the military career that that changed my actual physiological uh, profile. And it took me a number of years actually to get back down to the competitive side with athletics and. Then obviously within the military context, I was, and again, you know, leading back to the sports side and the opportunities that that's created for me, I was very fortunate. It took me a couple of years to get back to the running fitness. But in 2007, I was selected by the organization to go to India, where I competed in the World Military Games and uh, got to a, to a semi-final there. And again, in, in 2011, I was selected to go to Rio de Janeiro and uh, I competed in the, the World Military Games there. And interestingly, I competed against uh, a guy by the name of Mark Lebanowski, who would be one of the most famous 800-meter runners in the world. And I think if I hadn't joined the organization, I, I never would have got an opportunity to toe the line with, with Markin. Um, but... Uh, like so within that not only was my professional career developing and you know beyond the sport when when eventually no not retired yet but eventually when when I'll have to retire um that that I'll still be involved in something that is you know inherently about um physical training and about like that that that, that stimulates me uh you know well well in, into my career and obviously within within the job that I'm in now but um yeah, so I think uh, like that, we, we, we recognise the, the importance of having the Defence Forces. There is a huge crossover. I got huge support throughout either locally by, by unit commanders where you'd have been facilitated with time to train provided that you um, weren't needed you know, for other, other commitments. Now, obviously, the military comes first, but um, they would have facilitated you with training time and then any training or, or competitions that I would have competed outside of that the, the organization actually affords you block periods of leave away. So if you are, um, you know, the high-end Olympic athletes, the, the organization actually facilitates you with block leave periods where you can go in and do training camps. A good example probably historically of that would have been Michael Cruz, yeah. where he had extended periods of time where he'd have been on training camps. And he even, I think when he competed in, in Barcelona in 92, he would have been... Um, uh, still in the military, but uh, I suppose just to highlight that point is important for for the listeners. Yeah, yeah, I know. I would think so. And would that have been a similar experience to yourself, Paul? and that there would have been time afforded to, to you know to, to compete at that high level and to you know. Yeah, to yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been very fortunate with unit commanders. I suppose first and foremost to give you the nod that yeah, look, we recognise what you're doing, and absolutely. But I think you know the camaraderie between your fellow ranks at the time. You know, whether it was a barrack guard that you you needed to get off or to swap around or to change days, and that you had your friends there and your you know your fellow soldiers who who would do that. Now, traditionally, I suppose the GA would love a good Sunday training session, so I was always a kind of a Saturday duty person, which I don't think any of my fellow ranks would have. Uh, uh, would have stopped too quickly now to, to swap a Sunday for a Saturday duty but um, so the likes of that it was great within the units you know within the, your unit that there was people willing to go look I've trained on Tuesday night uh, I've, I've a duty of a Wednesday will you get a quick swap here and yep yeah, I'll be able to help you out there and you know there's a lot of that which you you really appreciate throughout the years and it was you know it was funny even within um a WhatsApp group within within young officers in the unit. You know, once I retired this year, I got a few texts, obviously within the group saying "well done" or whatever, and I kind of had to send a text back saying "thanks a million for your help over the last yeah. few years," obviously as well, in in, in supporting uh, swapping duties and different things. But certainly, yeah, because it, it isn't something you can really do on your own. Like we're an, I'm playing amateur sport or did play an amateur sport um, at inter county level. 
and you do need that support around you and it's brilliant that the Defence Forces would encourage you and not alone support you to do it but also encourage you to do it and it is something that I've always found I've had great people around me um, supporting me and encouraging me throughout my career and I don't think I would have been able to do it only for that yeah yeah no, oh, and like I mean, that that is, that is just a, a great feature for. But like I mean, as I said, the organisations always support people who've been engaging in kind of elite sport like that. And I suppose to to go back in the whole setup in the organisation as well. So in every bar in every barracks in the country, there is a there is a physical training facility, there is a gym, and kind of going forward, uh, sort of like as in any for our, I suppose for our listeners who are serving members and who may be wondering if there's any kind of niceies coming down their way to their to a local barracks near you um, but any major ongoing developments in the infrastructure upcoming um, for I, the I've been education? heavily involved in um, the, the two infrastructure development projects in Limerick and um, Kilkenny now these are multi-million euro facilities and what actually has become very apparent for me over over the last year with, with these projects is there's nothing like them in the country to get something similar you have to go to the UK where there's a purpose built um, you know PE facility um, and actually for, for Emer it's interesting to link across there where she's going to have a treatment room so now it's like a one stop shop for anything of, of a physical nature be it your injury or be it your, your fitness or your annual fitness test or whatever it may be so there's two facilities one in, in Kilkenny and, and uh, one in Limerick and they're multi-million euro facilities and like okay um, obviously pay is a big issue for the Defence Force at the moment but the likes of those facilities offset that no end you know what I mean uh, other things then there's there's smaller projects coming uh, over the next 12 months we've um, 90 grand allocated for outdoor training rigs um, so there'll be six of those going in across the organisation and nearly every um, installation across the army will, will have one of those in, in the coming years and these are a great opportunity for people particularly in the COVID environment where they can continue to train outside in, in, in a safe way um, obviously annually we've got budgets for um, what we call non-capital which would be smaller auxiliary items and then uh, capital items which would be like your, your treadmills etc there's a significant continued investment in that and there's a new tender system after being put in place for, for servicing, servicing contract and, and that will obviously see the quality of, of the equipment that we have continue to, to improve and the services that we have and in line with that as well there's a, a, a substantial budget for education so I'm just talking specifically about the, the physical education side so where you see around the table, um, you know, and talking about uh, education pieces, like the organisation is brilliant for the opportunities. It doesn't matter whether you're signals or whether you're physical education or, or what strand you're coming from. There's always opportunities to develop professionally within the organisation. So uh, two particular smaller projects that we've coming up are two masters, one in sports performance that I've done previously, and we're actually looking to get funding for uh, a wellness and physical education masters as well. So again, getting somebody with subject matter uh, expert within an area that can bring that expertise back to the organization. And then there's smaller courses then that as well that'll be funded like nutrition courses, etc. And then going, and I suppose it's important as well to bring in where we have the clubs and society side. So you've got the likes of the dive group, you've got the kayak group, they get a, a substantial amount of funding annually and not only just on, um, on, on uh, infrastructural uh, spending, but also on upskilling people in qualifications that will be recognised in, 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 in Civilian Street. Um, so they get their qualifications and then they're able to instruct within the organisation. And they're then rolled out for units. So at unit level, you'll have people who will get involved in kayak training. Um, it was alluded to earlier by, uh, by the sergeant on the likes of um, you know, orienteering the likes of um, you know mountain climbing or you know all these things so these are all skills that 
that if you come into the organization, you'll be exposed to if they are your interest, you know, so. Fantastic, it gives such a broad level of opportunity to people. Absolutely. And as regards, I suppose, for yourself, Emer, as well, those treatment rooms and those kind of extra facilities are of extreme value to the physiotherapy organisation. Absolutely. It'll just enhance our, our service that, that much more. And it was just down to the foresight of, um, like that, with the background that Comet Lettingham has, he could see the need for that service within the, the gym facility, which would then kind of see the physios working at their very best and like that in the facility where the soldiers can do all of their exercise and training that they need. So it, it, it was a real win-win. Well, thank you all for that. And what was a really fascinating insight into a topic that I'm sure a lot of people listening in have a real, real interest in. And it's a really popular subject now. So thanks very, very much for coming on, everyone. Thanks very much. Keen, thanks a million. Yeah, delighted to have the opportunity. Thanks very much. Thanks, Keen. For further information on the Irish Defence Forces, check out our social media channels and military.ie. Serving members are encouraged to check out the members area of military.ie. The Irish Defence Forces podcast is available on Spotify, Acast, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This, today's episode was produced by Corporal Keith Harrison and Sergeant Paul Keady of the Defence Forces Audiovisual School. The Irish Defence Forces podcast will be back soon with new episodes, so until then, thanks for listening and stay safe.